Thank you, John. Good morning, everybody. We're just within the morning time frame. It is my privilege to be here. I think John said it so beautifully last night when he said it's just so amazing that people would turn up turn up to listen to you speak. Like, seriously, it does your head in to think that that's the case. Um, but what is behind that is a hunger for who God is and a hunger for what He's got for you, a hunger for what He's doing amongst us as a church community. And as John just hinted at, what is incredible about each and every one of us knowing this person and this God, Jesus, is that He's actually our unifying factor. In a world that is desperate for community, and um, John said it well the other day when he said, we're just a bunch of individuals in the room and we don't even really know what community is and we're attracted to sameness and likeness. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit actually gets us to unite around one person no matter who we are and that's actually our equality. And so even though I may not know you and and you may not know me and we may be from different streams, it's actually the Son that's uniting us together. And so Jesus, I just want to echo John's prayer and ask and pray that you'd be made great today, that you would continue to do the work in us that you've begun. The Holy Spirit, you would breathe amongst us and you would awaken within us and you would remind us of these deep and beautiful truths and that you would quicken us to walk into alignment with where you've placed us in this day and age. I want to thank you for everyone sacrificing being here on their Saturday. I ask and pray that you would bear fruit today that uh, lasts and that you'd be pleased to dwell with us in the power and wonder of your name. Amen. I want to commence this um, session in just, we need a caveat. I want you to know that none of us have communicated with each other about what we're going to be talking about. Um, The reason I say that is you're going to identify some themes that are similar to what um, James Bryan Smith talked about last night. And what I get the joy of going is sitting back and going, look what the Holy Spirit's wanting to do. So when you start to hear similar things, don't let that just glibly glide over you, embrace them. There is a specific word that the Holy Spirit is wanting to speak amongst us as his church. And so take them, embrace them and run with them. And the deposit that I felt the Holy Spirit placed on me was this concept of story, that we are story beings. And the pressure you have when you're a speaker is they always say, any public speaking, start with a story. If you have a key point, you reinforce it with a story. And can I just say that's a lot of pressure because you don't always have a story. And actually, in writing this talk and putting it together, I went, I don't have a story. So I thought I would tell you a story about stories. And that is that the most amazing human being to have ever existed came into this earth and was a living story and walked and talked in stories. And his most passionate favourite story was that of the kingdom of God that is here now that it is just as real as this water bottle on this table, that it is a metaphysical reality. It is a spiritual reality and you and I get to enter in and out of that as we choose. And he always spoke of this kingdom in stories. Kingdom of God is like a pearl of great value that was so valuable that a pearl merchant sold every single pearl he had so he could get that one pearl that what it is that the Father has got for you now in the circumstances you are walking through is worth you giving up everything to encounter that. That this is not a duty thing, this is not an obligation thing, this is life and freedom in his kingdom and the Holy Spirit loves that work. And so I I don't know a lot of people um, in this room But my understanding is this Holy Spirit, everything that he is doing in you and with you and he's using circumstances as the tool to shape that reality is all to draw you closer to the heart of the Father. And so today it's my privilege to kind of unpack that a little bit. Um, Eugene Peterson, when he's talking about stories, said that stories are so important And Jesus speaks in metaphor and parables because they're so important because they make an organic connection from what you can see to what you cannot see. And that as people of a kingdom, we're called to, as Paul says, to set your heart and mind on the things that are not seen, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. And so we are story beings and our stories shape our worldview for good or evil. There's no neutral ground. 
It's either good or evil. And the problem with our stories is we don't even know what they are. It's the same with your worldview. You ask someone, what is your worldview? It is so natural to them, they can't even articulate it. You may have heard it likened to a goldfish who's swimming in the water and someone says, or another fish says to them, what's the water like? And they're like, what's water? It's all you know, you live and breathe. And so the stories that have shaped your thinking, your understanding, your values, your belief, and therefore your behaviour are not cognitive, they're subconscious. And your true religion is therefore not what you believe, but what shapes your behaviour. And there is a really strong narrative, a really strong story that has shaped the identity of the generations that are coming through at the moment, particularly the millennial generation. If you're born from the 80s onwards, and I missed out by six months, so I kind of straddle this space, but this story has been true of my life, is best encapsulated uh, by Levi's ad. So I'm just going to show you this story now and uh, sit back and enjoy the story that you've been told. This is a pair of Levi's, buttons and rivets and pockets and cuffs, and the thread that holds it together. When the road gets rough and the sky gets jumpy and the stars start falling on top of your head and the waves start breaking against your legs, it's the thread in your seams that's tied to your dreams. It's the soul in your feet that keeps the beat. You're gonna be great, you're gonna be great, you're gonna be great. You're gonna find the cure, you're gonna be famous, you're gonna be shameless, spitting seeds in the wind, tap dancing with your shoelaces pinned at the back of a bus, at the end of the road, at the bottom of the ninth, with a crown on your head, you're a queen, you're a king. You're the solo act in a sold out show at a six story stadium and you're proud, you're a hero. You got a hero's grip, swinging by a single stitch. You follow your heart, follow the leader, you're the leader. Are you joking? Are you breaking? Are you shaking? You're the next living leader of the world. You're a kid holding on to the thread that holds it together. This is a pair of Levi's. It's possibly the 20th time I've seen that ad. And each time I watch it, something else stands out. What I'm going to do is just get you to talk to the person next to you. What did you feel when you saw that ad, what stood out to you? I'll give you just 30 seconds because we're on a time limit. I'll give you 10 more seconds to wrap up. You're going to be great. 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 You're the next living leader of the world. You're the sold sold out act in a sold out show. And it probably took the 10th time for me to realise the the final line, which is, are you kidding? You're a kid holding on by a thread. And so what we have is this polar opposing stories that on the outside it's all about glory and it's all about making it and it's all about being great. And unfortunately, for those of us who have grown up in church in this secular age, the same story has come across. And Jeremiah 29, 11 has been the most un uncontextualised passage have been spoken about, which has then resulted in a lot of people being disillusioned with faith because Jesus being my butler has not offered up to me a never-ending view of pleasures. And the plans and purposes spoken to me have not proven true. And why have I turned 40 and I'm still single? I was sure that if I followed Jesus and gave him my life here, not here, that he would give me like this really great husband. This fake prosperity gospel that we have that has nothing to do with the actual living truth of who God is and what he has got for us. And this story that is shown us through this ad, marketers are so brilliant. I had the misfortune of studying marketing. (laughs) 
and then studying theology and being struck by the reality that they're the same. That marketing takes the kingdom of God, turns it inside out, back to front and violates it to get you to buy a product. And it's powerful and it works because it's how our souls are created. And so as we unpack this story, it is nothing new to the human condition. We've always desired greatness. We've always desired selfishness and autonomy. All of those things are not new. But sociologists look at the trajectory of history and how we've sort of um, progressed in our understanding of humanity and it's kind of like it's on steroids at the moment. Thank you, the Enlightenment. Thank you, Romanticism. Thank you, the Industrial Age. Never before have you been able to be an individualised, autonomous self, ready and able to make your own story of greatness. There are many... um, quotes I could use to typify this. I've chosen this one from Jürgen Moltmann and he explains it like this. In our modern society, human beings have apparently been turned into voracious monsters. His words, not mine. They are tormented by an unquenchable thirst for life. The more they have, the more they want. So their appetite is endless and can never be appeased. You only live once. Footnote, no, you don't. Just saying. We are told you might miss out on something and this hunger for pleasure, for possessions, for power, the thirst for recognition through success and admiration. That is the perversion of modern men and women. That is their godlessness. And the person who loses God makes a God out of himself. And in this way, a human being becomes a proud and unhappy mini God. And I am no expert. I am no psychologist or psychiatrist, but I I would like to put on the table that is there a, de- a mental illness a pandemic at the moment because the soul is screaming with a massive alarm bell saying something is desperately wrong with what we've decided it means to be human. So you will have heard it said in, in many ways, I'm sure, but we live in a secular age because of this. And secularism really became um, something that took, took hold and had a great foothold with Nietzsche's great statement, God is dead. Therefore, if God is dead, the only thing that matters is what makes humankind advance, progress and control. So if you're wanting to know why you have to have a new phone every two years, it's because of that core belief. That the only thing that matters is what makes mankind advance, progress and control. I'm in a Henry Nguyen phase at the moment. Anyone been through one of those? I'm just so thrilled that James Ryan Smith knew him. So I feel like now I've got one degree of separation from Henry now. Did you know Bonhoeffer as well? (laughs) Isaiah? Jesus? Um, (laughs) And the way that Henry Nowen in his book, The Way of the Heart, it's just one of those comments you could easily skip by, but he defines secularism as this, the way of being dependent on the responses of your Milo. Responding to the cultural reactions around you, that is secularism. That's similar to Leslie Newbegin's definition of your religion is not what you believe but what shapes your behaviour. And more often than we realise, the water we're drinking is actually that of a secular worldview, not that of the kingdom of God. He goes on to say that therefore the secular self is the false self fabricated by these social compulsions. Motivated and led by this drive and this striving for meaning, for possessions, for identity, for belonging, that this is actually a false self. And although this is true to the human condition, why is it that it's so entrenched at the moment? It has not always been this way. And sociologists speak about this. Um, thank you for the whiteboard, by the way. Can we just give a round of applause to all the behind-the-scenes people? Like, seriously, that stuff stresses me out. Give me a microphone and public speaking any day than this stuff. Adrian, thank you. Amy, thank you. Um, and sociologists talk about the healthiest cultures to have ever existed in the history of the world and in all their research and understanding, have a combination of three stories. And those three stories are held in unity. So they're not independent from each other. And the first story that shapes their life and narrative is the big 
story. And the big story is where we get our transcendence. Remember that word from this morning of beauty and truth and goodness? And underneath that is also, why am I here? What is all this about? Those big primal questions about who created this thing? And the healthiest cultures in the world, Judeo-Christian or not, have a narrative that speaks into this. And this means that there is a much, much bigger pattern of meaning for existence that explains sovereignly that something bigger is holding what we have as a community and as a, as a world, let alone individually. And this is where we get awe, wonder, the sublime. This is the stuff that just makes you kind of buckle at the knees and you realise you're this tiny little ant on this incredible universe. The second story that the healthiest, healthiest cultures in the world have is an our story. And this is our story collectively with the border backdrop of the big story that we get to live out together that is given meaning because... We're in it together, but because it stands with the transcendent story in the backdrop. So this could be the Collingwood Football Club story where you're just unified by football celebration. I think I'm one of the only very few Melburnians that couldn't care less about AFL, but but thank you. But are you Victorian? <laughs> um, and so the Our Story gives us meaning. We are meaning-thirsty creatures And we are suffering at the moment for a a dire lack of meaning. And then the third story, any guesses what that might be? If we have a big story in our story, what could the third story be? My story. That we then have a my story in here. And this is me as an autonomous being with my own body that is separate to yours. So I am an individual. But I am given my identity because I am tethered together with others, not codependently, but independently as we journey together this greater story that is what is driving us and shaping our direction. And so this is where we get identity. They say that the the two cultures that embody this the most are the Jews, the nation of Israel that is still being worked out today and walked out today, uh, but also Indigenous Australians. That They actually embody this um, the most as the healthiest um, example of this. And yet what an affront of what we've done to them, trying to make them like us. Maybe we've got a lot to learn from them. Side point. (laughs) Now, what has happened only in the last 20 to 30 years? Okay, that is not long in the scheme of history. Any historians out there, 23, uh, 30 years is not long. Is that there hasn't just been a death of the big story where that has folded and dissolved. There has been a death of the our story. And so that all we have left now is me, myself and I, but because God has created us for transcendence and meaning, and identity, we're still looking for those things, but we're looking for them in here. Which is why our biggest problems are whiter teeth in the next version of iPhone. And so where we're sitting as, as a church at the moment is we're on the precipice of that story collapsing before us. Collapsing with the people that we lead, collapsing in our own lives and definitely collapsing in the culture around us and any institution is wrestling with this and we don't even trust institutions because we've got no trust anymore that all we can really trust is myself. All I've really got is my own control and all I've really got is whatever private salvation project I can concoct for myself. And the reason I'm speaking this out to those who are believers and in a Christian context, and I say this is nothing but a heart of love and compassion, is if we're not careful, we too live this out and it's potentially more dangerous because we get to put a Jesus veneer over it. But the reality within our souls hasn't shifted and hasn't changed. So as I show you this, my, my point that I'm trying to make is that the secular story is not working. Um, not only that, but our faith and faith in the, the Christian West actually isn't transforming people. 
even worse. Um, Barna have just released a bunch of research. In fact, they were here this week. Uh, they launched this in Australia this week. And just some of the stats that they've discovered is that um, 18 to 35-year-olds in Australia, so this is Australian research, um, 36% have left the church. And that means those who have grown up in church. 36% have left. 36% are still going to church. No, sorry, 30, another 36% would say they're Christian, but they're no longer in a faith community. If you want to add 36 plus 36, we get 72, I think. 72% who have grown up in church are no longer either believing or activated in that space. That's a lot. 21% are habitual churchgoers, so they're doing that out of a, a cultural Christianity because that's just what you do. Anyone good at maths and tell me how many is left? It should be eight. (laughs) But I trust you more. Um, 72 plus eight is 21, 91. Anyway, you get my point. (laughs) Data is not my strong point. 8% are classified as resilient disciples. And by that, the definition is that their life matches what they believe, as opposed to there being a disconnect between life and belief. And what they found in the research is that because the secular story is failing miserably, there's actually a growing hunger and desire for answers and for meaning and for spirituality. There is a high view of spirituality with over 38% Australians would come to church if they were asked. But the biggest hunger in that age group of 18 to 35 is not just that they find out that that faith in God is true. They also want to know that it is good. This desperation to know that God is good, that faith is good, that it can be beautiful. So just taking this for a second, I, I came across a really helpful model and it's really simple, but it also involves circles. So if you leave today and go, what did you learn today? I just learned a lot about circles. And as I draw this circle, I just want you to think of that as a, um, a zoomed-in version of the my story, that here's my story here, and that being on this earth as it currently is, I'm desperate to find a pattern for meaning and a pattern for centre outside of myself. Every single one of us desires that, no matter who we are. And so life becomes this journey of how do I get from here to here? And so we learn really quickly there are certain practices, habits, rituals, clothing, (laughs) career, that will shape in me and give me something and surround this Space that enables me to move from here to here. We all do this subconsciously. Psychologists would call this an ego. Egos are essential for the development of a child particularly. That if you do not develop a sense of autonomous self, of your likes and your dislikes, of who you are, of who you're not, then your second half of life will be really tough in walking that out. So it's an excellent starting point. Every single one of us needs to dress in something. It's not a great continuing point. And it is definitely not a great ending point at all. And this is what I'm just going to call the false self. How do I get from here to here? If I just do this, this, this and this, then I'm going to be okay. If I just achieve this if I just know this person or these people, and if I just have these possessions, then I'm going to be okay. And then over here we have the true self, which biblically speaking is the only self that's actually ever existed. Psychologists are unanimous in saying the ego is an illusion. It's not even real. It's important, but it's not actually real. That you are seated with Christ, that you are in the palm of his hand, that you no longer live, but you live in Christ. And this is the place of mystery and wonder and freedom and adventure. This is not the place of manipulation, coercion or control or striving. That this is your place. 
And this stuff's much easier to teach than it is to walk out. Because this stuff here has embedded itself concretely that if only I do this, I'm going to be okay. If only I achieve this, I'm going to be okay. But the narrative in the Bible of Scripture would say this is all lies. And you see this in Jeremiah, you see this in Romans, you see this in Hosea. They exchanged my glory for what? For lies. Shame being one of the major motivators that drives us. Shame is different to guilt. Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame says I am wrong. Hosea says they exchanged my glory for shame. We actually swapped it over. And we dressed ourselves in shame. We dressed ourselves in lies. And so you and I have within our thinking and in our mindset, I am not. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not funny enough. I am not. I am not. I am not. We have our own scripts and those scripts are not just shaped by our own human condition. But those scripts are shaped by the stories in your life. There's this great quote in a book called Walking the Dead. Well, sorry, Waking the Dead, that says the story of your life is the story of the one who knows who you could be and fears it. In other words, the enemy, who knows a lot, has tailor-made and used circumstances and themes to your suffering. Have you noticed how everyone has a theme to their suffering? to ensure that you believe a certain script that is tailor-made to prevent you from walking into the actual truth of who you are. And so this here is lies, this here is truth. And so do you know what Jesus does? Well, the art of transformation, spiritual formation, is to get you from here to here. And it never ends, it just keeps happening, it just keeps going deeper and more beautiful and wider. So do you know what the Holy Spirit does? And it's his great joy to do so. In his grace, he makes your private salvation project fall apart. He uses suffering. So I'm in a Henry Nguyen face. No one reads Henry Nguyen when life's great. <laughs> but gosh, what a gift. That God would put that man on earth to articulate the human condition so honestly and so rawly and so well. A, to help you and I know we're not alone, that this is normal, there's not something wrong with you. But B, provide us with a map and truth to help those wounds heal so that we no longer respond out of that space. And so in God's grace, he enables this to fall apart and you know that's happening when you can't control it, you can't explain it and you can't fix it. And you are forced either literally or spiritually to get on your knees in surrender. Where you are forced to be at the mercy of who God is. It's an act of grace. My coach, a guy called Terry Walling, says it is a disaster to find success too early. that the people who can bring transformation and bring a a fragrance of the kingdom are those who have encountered their own brokenness, who have faced it, who have allowed grace and the healing of the Holy Spirit to bring truth only he can bring, not truth that you can be told. And so in your life, this here, at best, we can cope. Self-help, at best, helps you cope. Understanding your Enneagram number, at best, helps you cope, gives you tools and articulation. It cannot say, any other ones out there? The struggle is real. It is real. I'm pretty sure it's the hardest number to be and I'm not just saying that because I am one. But at best we can cope but we're not coping and we're looking great on the outside but crumbling on the inside. And so what Jesus does is when this happens, you have one of two choices and I've seen people do both and one is really ugly and really sad. And one is beautiful, marked with goodness and beauty and truth. You either tighten that belt and you dig your heels in deeper 
or you find a place that enables you to have trust and surrender. The gospel is always most compelling to those who realise they're inadequate. And it's when we're in that space that Jesus gets to come and do what he does best. So just purely for the help of framework, the false self is fragile, whereas the true self is abundant. The false self is about performance, whereas the true self is being. The false self is about requirements. The true self is about relationship. The false self is about being correct. Any ones out there? Because we're always right. True self is about being connected. We go from mental management to mental freedom. This is, exists, but it's relative. It's a relative identity. This is your absolute identity. I think James is saying that, that Paul says in Christ 89 times. That is your reality. And so your role on earth right now is the dress rehearsal for you to discover who you are in Christ. This is why you exist. This is why he's put you on earth. How do we discover that? How do we walk out the first mandate given to Adam and Eve without falling for the illusion and the seduction and the temptation to mistrust what God has said? We go from competition to compassion. We go from righteousness to humility. And healthy religion is the only thing that is able to move us. Religion, religios, coming from that Greek word meaning to reconnect, to bring back. And so if your understanding of religion isn't taking you here, you need to find another one. The Holy Spirit's mandate is to show you the reality. Because when Jesus died and rose again, the great exchange from truth to lies went back. The great exchange from glory to shame went back. And now we get to rediscover that. I've got a clip that I think will show us this the best. So it's not just cognitive knowledge. It happens to be Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I do not understand the Lord of the Rings. Just going to put my hands up there. It's way too complicated for me. But this particular scene has, is one of the things that has marked my soul and I'd, I'd like to share it with you. They stole it from us. Sneaky little orbitses. Wicked, tricksy, false. No, no. Master? Yes, precious, false. They will cheat you, hurt you, lie. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. You're a liar. And a thief. No. Murderer. Go away. Sneaky little hobbit says, you have this Smeagol Gollum character that is the best metaphor for the false self, true self. This false self with really clever scripted lies to keep you trapped and to prevent you from walking out in freedom. 
And then you have, and I forget which one's the good one and which one's the bad one. I think, is Gollum the free one? Have I got that wrong? Okay, Smeagol. He had the power the whole time to choose what voice he was going to listen to. That over time this master had proved faithful. That this master had proved true. That he was the only one that could hold the ring and not be bound by its pride and its power. The greatest enemy wasn't his enemy. The greatest enemy was his own self-talk and his own belief. And so as I walk through that at the moment, as you walk through at the moment, the Holy Spirit is coming alongside you and going, let me show you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to dress this up. There are a couple of things you can do to create space to enable me to do that work for you. But will you posture yourself and enable me to meet you and come running to you to take you where you've always belonged? That is your Christian story. That is your journey. That is your testimony. I was going to end this talk um, going practical because often people go, yeah, I get it, but how? Um, But it just wasn't gelling. Um, So I'm going to quickly give you practicals, like on a slide, that's it. And then I just want to prophetically go into some things that I feel that the Lord is saying to people in this room specifically. There are particular practices that you can centre yourself around that aren't the work in and of itself, but enable the space for the work to happen. Um, Sabbath, it's just got to happen. So do it. (laughs) One, I'm a one, this is what happens. Solitude. Silence, contemplation. If you want some resources on these things, um, there's a couple I can't recommend highly enough. Uh, Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, I've just done an eight-week series on Sabbath. All the best stuff I've ever heard on Sabbath and learnt in Sabbath is here, available to you, um, particularly week six by AJ Svoboda on Sabbath is outstanding. Um, Henry Nguyen, it's a Henry Nguyen season. Reaching Out by Henry Nguyen, The Way of the Heart by Henry Nguyen. There's also an excellent book on prayer by Johannes Hartel, who's a German um, theologian. Uh, amazing. Takes really heavy theological concepts and then makes you... So an only book I've read on prayer that's made me want to pray, like put the book down and pray. Uh, he also has an outstanding talk um, that I haven't got up there that I cannot recommend highly enough. If you Google um, 24-7 prayer, Geneva 2016, he has got the most beautiful, good <laughs> and true talk on this that I have ever heard. So 24-7 prayer, Geneva, Johannes Hartel, 2016. Please, please watch it and then find my details and tell me how you found it. Um, and then, of course, you've got some greats like Thomas Merton, Thomas Keating. There's, there's never end of people that are speaking to the place of contemplation because that's what we've lost in our Christian practice and we're suffering the consequences for it. That the Lord's call to his church at the moment is not to go wide, it's to go deep. I said this the other day that if, if our church's mission was dependent on good communication and organisation and effort, we would have got there by now. It's 100% dependent on the work of the Spirit. And so he's saying, where are my army and where's my soldiers who are going to follow the work of the Spirit in their life so that we can be transformed first and then take that transformation to others? Um, but this was not gelling with me to take you practically. And so I just felt that there were three things that um, the Holy Spirit may be wanting to speak to some people in the room. And so I'm just going to speak to those things. Um, they may be for one, they may be for a number, um, but either way, this is the voice um, that the Spirit wants. This is the voice of the Spirit to you. The first one, I'm getting emotional. Oh, I hate when that happens. That's good. The first one is... An invitation to let go. That there are some things here within the false self that may even look good and may even have a Christian veneer on them but are actually preventing you from walking into the freedom of what God has got for you. That there is a transition people are going through and you know you're in a transition when you don't want to go backwards but you don't know what the future looks like. 
And in a transition, there is always a letting go of something. This is Isaiah 43 uh, that speaks into this beautifully. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Now Isaiah is speaking in the context of exile. But the Israelite nation was stuck in that space and shaped by the thinking of the past. And the whole time, the father is saying, I'm doing something new. Can you see it? Do you feel it? And there are some people in this room that have got that sense and that quickening. And the true self can hear that sing. The false self's a bit scared. But the true self can hear it sing. And the Lord's encouragement to you is that thing that you were hanging on to that identity particularly, which is always the hardest thing to let go, (laughs) that it's actually time to let it go. Um, How do you do that? The best best and most easiest way I can tell you, this is how you let go. Are you ready? (laughs) That unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It just remains a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it will produce a harvest. This is the pastoral mystery that happens over and over again, this story of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. What is it that the Holy Spirit has been asking you to die to? And I pray now that he'll... uh, enable you and give you the courage to do so. So the encouragement there is to let go and see what God does anyway. The only one who's ever been in control, the only one who has ever sustained. I love the poem by George Herbert where he says, I gave you the eyes, (laughs) but my eyes are so full of shame, but yeah, I gave you those eyes. Often trusting God is is mistrusting ourselves, realising that we're not in control at all. So letting go. Second word uh, that comes to mind is the word courage. And I felt that there were a number of people here who have had a sense and a stirring of the Spirit that the Spirit is asking something of you, but it doesn't make human sense. That when you hear it, there is a sense of freedom, a bit like Gollum dancing freely with joy that he gets to, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. But as Bonhoeffer says that often we hear the voice of the Spirit and it sounds true when it makes us want to jump for joy. But the flesh lacks the courage to believe it could be true and so it silences the voice of the Spirit. That we live in a world where we feel like the church is peripheral to the world. But the message version of Ephesians says, no, 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 the world is peripheral to the church because the church is the embassy of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is the only true and lasting reality that is advancing and God's people take it by force. So I want to reframe it for you and go, that stirring that you're feeling, that sense, and it could be about a relationship, it could be about your career, it could be about about anything. What would it look like to take the courage to dare to believe it's true? Romans 8, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. This is the space of joy. So my invitation to those of you who are in that space is to trust that voice. For some, it may be reacquainting with that voice. For others, it would, no, I know what that is and I need to take that on and I'm going to do that um, with the Spirit's help. And the third thing I, I really felt is this invitation for people to come home. I'm struck by the story of the prodigal son, the longest story Jesus ever says. And James told us the other day is the most preached on part of the Gospels for good reason because it resonates with us and it's true that you have this encounter or this story of the younger son and the elder son and... The younger son basically does the biggest affront you could ever do in any era, but particularly in a Middle East era. And he abandons family, custom, village, takes an inheritance early, runs off and squanders it. And Luke 15 says, I will, he says, I will leave this, oh, sorry, wrong phrase, go back. No, 
You know when your stuff just slides up and then it stuffs your talk up, but that's all right. I don't have to get it perfect. There you have his deepest betrayal. And Luke says, he set off to a distant country. I have never related to the prodigal son. It hasn't been my story. I've got a friend who is the quintessential prodigal son where we haven't talked for 20 years. I'm not on social media, so there's been no contact. And I prayed for him the other week. In the morning, he came to mind. I knew he'd moved to Sydney and and ended up living a really, really destructive lifestyle. I'd heard that through the rumour mill. And he came to mind in the morning, so I just prayed for him. And that afternoon, he emailed me to 20 years from uni. Uni. (laughs) Call it college. And we met and we had dinner and he told me how the father brought him back home in the most incredible way. And he would be our poster child for the prodigal son. But in looking at this story recently, with the help of Henry Nguyen's The Prodigal Son, or the the story of the prodigal son, which is excellent, I realised I'm the prodigal son every time I leave home. And I leave home spiritually every time I ignore the truth of this. I leave home spiritually when I try and find a home and and look far and wide to find one and I live as though it's not here. I leave home all all the time and that's the human condition, P.S. It's a dance between this. And the Holy Spirit just came to me and said, yeah, no, you're a prodigal all the time because your natural default's not to trust this communion with me and that was really humbling. It's the death of the spiritual reality that I belong to God and him alone. Not to my possessions, not to my achievements, not to what I can or can't achieve. And what you're struck with is he says this phrase, I will leave this place and go back to my father. But he says, I will go back as a slave. That he, he is so humbled by that, his story and his rebellion, that he doesn't think he's worthy anymore to be a son. And then we have that beautiful encounter. He returns humbled with the diminishment of a slave, but the father embraces him as a celebrated son. The identity had never changed. And you see, you have this vision of this Middle Eastern man with hairy legs, you know, with his robe, which they never showed their legs. To run, you have to lift your robes up. For him to run, he had to show his hairy Middle Eastern legs. And he goes running to his son. So there are some to come home and then self-disclosure. Then there's the older brother. I am the older brother. I was born Christian. I've never not known Jesus. I haven't yet, by the grace of God, and I mean that, ever walked away from that. I am increasingly grateful for that and that my faith is not my own. It was given to me. And honestly, if not but for the grace of God, go I, right? But when you look at the story of the older brother, we have this encounter that I relate to too easily. I'm not sure about you as I work out my notes here. He ends up bitter, resentful, angry, and he says, quote, unquote, but I did all the right things. All these years I have slaved for you. Wrong identity. Same identity that the younger son took on. And never once disobeyed any of your orders of yours. Yet you never offered me so much as a kid for me to celebrate with my friends. If you would place me in that story, I'd be out in the back of the paddocks with him. I get it. Henry Nguyen in his book on the prodigal son says the older brother ends up in a self-righteous space, self-pitying and jealous. We never want to be there. It's just this natural human reaction. But a deeper complaint actually comes. And what you realise what is happening to the elder brother is that he's speaking from a heart that feels like it never received what it was due. This is me. 
He ends up going through this self-rejection that I am less loved, so I have to prove myself more. Henry Nguyen goes on to say, once the self-rejecting complaint has formed in us, we lose our spontaneity to the extent that even joy can no longer evoke joy. Joy and resentment cannot coexist. The music and dancing, instead of inviting us to joy, become a cause for even greater withdrawal. And yet when you take a a close look at the story, do you know what is astounding? The father runs to them both. That the point is not how you lived this out. Debauchery or righteousness, that is not the point. The point is, is that the father wants both sons home. And to neither of them does he say, go home. He says to both of them, come home. And I am convinced that if there is any hope, of which I believe there is truckloads of, for the church to not make just a dent, but a tsunami wave of influence and renewal in the time and place that God has given us, it will only happen if each one of us as sons and daughters of the living God are sitting around his table having a banquet and coming home. And living from that place. So I'm going to invite you to stand as I would love to pray over us. Holy Spirit, I just want to invite you to do what you're already doing. And that is a work of stirring and opening and counselling, illuminating into the hearts and the minds and particularly the souls of your children. Praise you and I thank you that you know intimately the details of each one. And I ask and pray that your message of freedom and of coming home and of a grace that abounds would come running to those areas of inadequacy that we feel so deeply. That you would come that you would do work that only you could do. For those who are being asked to let go, I ask and pray that you would give them strength and courage to enable that to happen. For those who you are speaking clearly to, but it takes so much courage and the voice of the flesh is at war with the voice of the Spirit, I pray now in the name of Jesus that the voice of the Spirit would silence the voice of the flesh. And Jesus, would you continue to show us what it means to be a church that comes home? Would you dismantle the idols that we don't even know we have? the false beliefs that we don't even know we have? And would you free us like we got to see in the tension between Gollum and Smeagol that we get to go, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And just now in the spirit, I just want to say over each person, leave me alone and never come back. To the accuser that has spent a lifetime accusing people, we bind his voice. To the scripts and the faulty beliefs that have taken foothold, we release those things now in the name of Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we release you to do that work of joining us to the Son to enjoy the relationship he has with the Father. The power and glory of your wonderful name. Amen.